Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series. I'm Bryony Widdop, finance and funds lawyer by background and a partner in DLA Piper's London office. And I would like to extend a warm welcome to Linda Wang, co-founder at Lending Block. Linda has joined me here today to discuss topics around tech in finance and finance in tech. So Linda, would you like to start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to your background, your current role, and some details on the Lending Block offering? So I started Lending Block about a year ago. Uh, basically, came out of the idea that I was trading a lot of cryptocurrencies. I had been working in the blockchain space for a number of years before that as part of the Deloitte Blockchain Lab. and. I had started my own lending business, but then looking at those two factors, lending and digital assets, nothing kind of existed in that space. So I wanted to build something that allowed people with digital assets to get the ability to borrow and lend that. Sure, okay. So on that theme of borrowing and lending in in digital assets. From my perspective, I think this is really forging new ground in the digital assets market space. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how it's been that kind of development, you're, you're opening a new space in the market here. Yeah. You know, there must have been some challenges around acceptance, education, adoption. Have you got some insights on those topics? Yeah, it works now, Faven, that it is a use case that people are demanding, you have the possibility of putting your cash in a bank and earning interest. You have the ability as a consumer to go to a bank to request for a loan, as an institution to go to your prime brokers to request a loan uh, with your kind of security assets. You don't have that ability to do so in the crypto asset markets when we first started. So it was a case of us going around and saying, okay, digital assets, people are coming from traditional industries, building out these new infrastructures, building up these funds, building up the same type of players and market participants as there have been in traditional finance. Is there the same use cases that they need to have in this space as well? So going out there and kind of understanding their needs, kind of client needs, is the way that we started to build out the vision and ultimately the development of the platform. So in, in that case, you know, it's ain't like any kind of startup and business development, finding out the client, what they need, how we can best supply that demand and how we can best build something that people have signed up for where we have guaranteed kind of demand for on day one is the process that we have gone through to build a link block. Great. I, I think it you know it fits into a general market trend of increasing sources of alternative lending. We're seeing that growth in in many different aspects in the in the borrowing and lending marketplace. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you know we've touched on is the digitization of the lending environment and also democratization to a degree. Yeah. Certainly through the peer-to-peer -peer lending environment, yeah. you know, we've seen that come forth and then you know find a regulatory platform as yeah. well. So you know maybe you have some thoughts around how lending blocks, lending model fits into that disintermediated lending environment yeah. and, and, and kind of how you've brought that into the model that you're using. Yeah. 
So Learning Block is innovating not in just that it is creating a new infrastructure for a new asset class, digital assets, but it is also innovating securities lending because securities lending has always been done in a very op opaque manner in that you know you have to go to your prime brokers and those brokers talk to each other and agree you know a very specific term for specific contract for specific loan um, and what we are trying to do here is to create that you know transparent exchange venue where people can see yield curves where people can see the order books for the specific loans they enter into you know a, a specific kind of general contract that determines that specific um, the specific rules between which the uh, counterparties would trade under um, and all of those kind of terms and parameters are set up and um, set forth in advance of that trade happening and everyone signs up to that. So I think that is you know, something that we're doing, which is changing the landscape in which lending is done for digital assets and taking that back to how that relates to the de democratization of lending and the changing kind of infrastructure for lending, not just for digital assets, but also for any type of asset class. So one of our advisors is Andrew Mullinger. He was uh, one of the co-founders of Funding Circle and what they are doing in the peer-to-peer -peer market um, and other kind of peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms or even crowdsourcing platform have been really active in talking to regulators, being really proactive in talking to regulators, understand, making them understand the models that they're building for new marketplace infrastructure and getting those regulations to really change and to adapt to these new business models, which I think is really important and not just getting the regulators educated for what the potential difficulties or challenges might be for consumers and users of that platform, but also just to make those platforms more credible and more trustworthy for anyone who's using them. Yeah, so there's obviously a flow of information in that direction of trying to take transparency and, and sort of some of the maybe governance practices of the traditional space and bringing them into this tech-driven um, kind of platform space. But do you think or how do you think the experiences of participants on your platform might translate into pressures, if you like, in their experience that they have in the traditional space. So where they're interacting with incumbent uh, players in the market, Th that education process, I can see some interesting uh, kind of conversations yeah. going on from their experience with you. Yeah. And then they take that back elsewhere. Yeah. So I think there's kind of mutual education going on because we're developing such a new framework and we're getting both new and incumbent participants to try and engage with it. There is, like you said, different expectations that they have that they bring with. For example, if they understand or have participated previously in uh, securities lending or retail, they have a certain type of expectations that this should work in this way for digital assets as well. And then for us, when we are trying to get clients to sign up to our lending terms, then you know there is a process of us not just selling to the business 
development or the trading uh, or the trading desks, but it is also getting you know, their treasury comfortable with it, getting their compliance, the legal offices going through all of the kind of lending terms that we really want to set out as you know, standard terms, but they can't be standard because they're new. So do we or do we not want to engage in commentary on it? And then do we not try and feed that back to the business or the, to our legal teams and try and change those contracts because they may have relevant points, but we can also not just keep on changing our legal frameworks or our business models to fit every single like client demand or comment because you know we'd be sitting here forever and everyone has their own thinking about how something should work given that you know this fits neither here or nor there so we're really trying to almost like trailblaze and set out standard terms for an industry that you know exists only really fractionally yeah that's really interesting because you've got this drive generally in financial services delivery towards personalization right but then in your space you've got a, a conflict you, you kind of needing to pull away a little bit from being able to offer a bespoke solution mm. because the whole point of the platform is the ability for the counterparties to transact with each other underneath a standardized set of umbrella terms yeah. So I can see that that creates quite an interesting uh, conflict. Yeah. Leading on from that, you've also worked a lot on uh, the digitization of your contract. Yeah. So you've worked in that space of the, the clash between a smart contract, what a smart contract is, how a smart contract automatically executes trades, and then trying to bring that automation or that uh, standardization into your legal terms mm -hmm. so maybe you could give us a few insights on what that process was like yeah. um, and you know some of the challenges and things that you've come across yeah so I think the way that we have tackled this is that just to kind of take it an overview of what our platform does we have the execution venue so where the trade happens trade order matching and everything once the two counterparties or multiple counterparties to a trade have agreed to what they're lending at and what kind of the term structure and the rates, uh, then we have a settlement process. And within that settlement process, you have to agree to this legal document, which we are calling the JADALA, the Global Digital Asset Lending Agreement, um, based on the GMSLA, which is kind of for the Global Master Securities Lending Agreement. Within that process, there was this kind of question of how do we integrate these smart contracts and in my opinion smart contracts is not a legal contract in anything but name it is not a contract it is just an automated code or automated program that executes a function that you have told it told it to do so so the way that we have done it is that we have gone to a lawyer set out the terms that we want to achieve and want everyone to abide by and we have you know digitized it in the way that DocuSign does it which is create a PDF um, put the counterparty's name everything legal about them you know where they're based 
um, how to reach them, their company names and incorporation details, and then basically timestamp that signature uh, to their organization. And that's that's as simple as is. And all of the do uh, details about the loan is stored in a smart contract on the blockchain, but it is just encrypted information about that specific loan rather than it executing anything. Because we have seen countless times in ICOs, contract wallets, and so many, so many other things that once you deploy a smart contract to the blockchain, you can't change it. So you can create another new updated contract to replace it, but you can't change the contract itself. And that creates a lot of problems with hacking, with insufficient testing, with you know even business-based changes. You wanted to do it one way, but then after a year or you know less than that, you might want to change the way that the smart contract automates things, then it will become really difficult to do so. If you start to add oracles, which which are basically information or data that the smart contract would call upon to execute depending on variables, that basically takes it out of the smart contract realm. And then what is the point of having a smart contract? So we have been very light touch in terms of our operations of our platform using smart contracts. And I think that might be a little bit counterintuitive because we are a blockchain company, we are a crypto asset lending business, and there are a lot of platforms doing decentralized lending out there using smart contracts, but we see a lot of potential risks there, which is why we have adopted to do um, what we do in our manner. Yeah, some potential benefits there to maintain uh, more uh, business flexibility mm. if, if there's less automation in a, in a smart contract sense, that, that makes a great deal of sense. So we haven't touched yet on regulation, but we should probably talk for a bit about the regulatory landscape. The crypto assets environment generally has been the subject of much regulatory scrutiny for the last, say, 12 months when the regulators started to wake up and take a look at this whole new market that was developing and gaining in value. Obviously, the, the volatility of the market is also the subject of much media attention. But just looking at the regulatory piece, what challenges, you know, have you tackled the regulatory uncertainty or the perceived potential lack of a regulatory framework here in the UK. What challenges or perhaps uh, advantages have you found with, with approaches that you've been able to take through those regulatory weeds? So when we started out, we were very active in trying to figure out which jurisdiction we should go into and uh, actively seek to be regulated. And we landed on Gibraltar because they have a very good framework which authorizes or provides approval and permissions for DLT firms. So they have something that is called a DLT license and it strikes the delicate balance of, I think what we mentioned earlier around, um, you know, having uh, too much regulation that might stifle innovation and having not enough in that, you know, it might create problems for consumers and by not protecting them well enough. So this, their regulation is not 
given by what permissions you ha should have for what activity. So you're not going to get a broker dealer license, you're not going to get an MTF license, you're not going to get you know, a license for the specific type of activity that you're doing. You're getting a license for telling them what you're doing and then demonstrating that you're following the nine principles that they have set out, which they think are important for uh, any companies dealing with a complex kind of digital assets uh, within their platform. So those principles include treating customers fairly, um, having kind of a general kind of directors and managers kind of um, framework. They have AML, KYC requirements, capital requirements, all of that kind of things that you know the FCA also documents in various handbooks, but has developed more on a case-by-case -case basis for specific asset classes, industries that have developed over time in the financial services sector. So we thought that that was a good way to approach this and um, use that as a stepping stone to show that we are proactively seeking to be regulated, uh, seeking to do it in the right way and use that as a stepping stone to see where we might fit in in other jurisdictions as well. And we have also gone out to understand and do jurisdictional analysis on whether we are, as a company, required to follow certain rules in certain jurisdictions rather than others, and where, you know, for example, the SEC or CFTC we're not certain about, we have taken a more cautious way of approaching those jurisdictions by not directly operating with firms in those jurisdictions. Some market observers have been critical, in particular, of certain island jurisdictions who were early movers in the regulatory space, like you identified with mm -hmm. Gibraltar. Although obviously you found the offering that they have works from your business perspective. Have you come across any challenges with your institutional clients yeah. questioning the content and nature of your regulation or you know the, the source? Like yeah. you, obviously you work from London, but yeah. you're the company is regulated in Gibraltar. I just wondered what kind of questions you come across. Yeah, I think there is that piece again about education and yeah, you know, island jurisdictions, they aren't as credible as for example, US or UK regulators. We are actively speaking to the US regulators and the UK. So it is a matter of telling those institutions that you're working with and many of them do understand the space and do understand the frameworks to say, okay, we are looking to be regulated in these jurisdictions as the regulation becomes clearer. But for now, we want to follow the right rules or you know, some principles whereby we can demonstrate that we are doing things in a manner that is proper. And it is about showing them, okay, we have AML frameworks, we have compliance, uh, offices, we have yeah, we have AML and KYC, and we have all of these other policies and procedures which we have to show regulators, and that is something that is very important to our clients as well. So I think by showing not just that we are regulated and use that as an umbrella term, but to show them that we have these policies and procedures in place which keep our company and our operations in check. I think that is the way that we are convincing some of our 
uh, customers that what we have is trustworthy. So it almost sounds like there's a conversation ongoing with some of your institutions around potentially using the initial regulatory piece like a, a learning tool, a stepping stone, and something that's available now that you can orientate your business structure, mm -hmm. your compliance, and your risk management around yeah. because it's available and it's clear and, it, and it's written and you can have direct discourse with the local regulator often quite easily or yeah. more freely maybe in the smaller jurisdictions. And then perhaps there's a conversation uh, about how to uh, layer on with additional regulation in other jurisdictions as that becomes more clear in the future. Yeah, that is, that is kind of what we are preparing to do and approaching it that way with our clients and with the regulators we're speaking with. There's been a lot of price volatility in the last 12 months with crypto assets in general. And recently in the media, we've had uh, constant reports of, you know, Bitcoin drops below five, Bitcoin drops below four, and it just seems to be a never ending slide. I wondered how that volatility in the crypto assets markets is affecting your business, LendingBlock's business. I think in the short term, uh, it has had some impact. So one of them, and I think, you know, looking back, people wanted to enter this asset class, you know, as traders, as funds, as other market participants, they wanted to get access or exposure to this volatility. But when the volatility is constantly downwards, that's a little bit different. Um, and actually, you know, Bitcoin has, or other and other cryptocurrencies in the top kind of market cap has have been quite stable for a number of months before the last month and did dampen the kind of investment. Um, it dampened a lot of, you know, the ICO market in particular, which, you know, did do a lot of fundraising leading up to 2018 and uh, a little bit post that. But then since the price of Ethereum in particular has dropped, it has had a lot of impact on ICOs, uh, fundraising, and also ones who have collected funds in, in Ethereum and saw their treasury drop by a lot. That is one of the things. The other one being, you know, for a platform like us, lending and borrowing, it is, we are not, we are agnostic to how the market volatility is because there's demand both when prices are rising and prices are falling because, and when prices are stable because people are constantly looking to uh, find yield or find liquidity and find coins that they can short or hedge. So that is not a problem for our platform per se, but it does impact a lot of our clients and our users when there aren't any projects to invest in, where when everyone's trying to sell and tries up the liquidity. Um, so that type of, yeah, the volatility we hope to see is, you know, more uh, up, going up and going down rather than just going kind of one direction, which is down, yeah. So as the digital asset class continues to take shape, 
Uh, and we got lots of media attention, lots of investor interest, lots of focus on volatility and values. And is this market going to still be here? Have ICOs died? And lots of uh, media attention. Where do you think that the crypto blockchain market will head in the next 12 months? And, and do you think that, that Bitcoin is here to stay? Or do you think that ultimately that's going to be replaced with with some other digital assets or perhaps no digital assets? I think that kind of question is in the same realm as, you know, is internet here going to stay? Is AI going to be here to stay? It is an evolution of what the asset is and what it can do and whether it is a digital form of, you know, there will be a digital form of the dollar or of fiat currencies, whether they should be, you know, digitally native for payment or for the utility of providing certain platforms with certain operations and, or, you know, whether it's like a new funding, fundraising process. It is going to be involvement and I think we'll see a lot of those use cases develop simultaneously in different spectrums of the market. So I don't know if Bitcoin or, or you know a specific crypto asset is here to stay, but I think that as a whole, money has been you know in the process of being digitized for you know the last century. Uh, so I think it is definitely you know here to stay, but in what form and which currencies, assets, and what structures they're going to take on is still something that we need to pay attention to and see how it evolves. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks to Linda Wang, co-founder at LendingBlock, for sharing her insights today on tech in finance and finance in tech. Do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper, as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technologies in business and wider society. Several podcasts, including ones focusing on robotics and automation, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, and crowdfunding, amongst others, are already available for you to listen to on our website, or may be accessed via the Apple Podcast app on iOS or SoundCloud, as well as other apps and services for Android and other phones. Thank you from me, Bryony Widdup, partner in the finance team at global law firm DLA Piper.